we moved to Florida when I was six and he joined a hunt club and didn't know that they didn't allow girls and women there in the 1960s. <laughs> and he was determined, he wasn't a lawbreaker, but he was determined that I could learn to hunt with my brothers and dressed me as a boy, told me not speak to anybody and answer to Harvey. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and you're going to have to bear with me a little bit on this one. I got a little bit of uh, some sinus congestion going on, so it uh, may sound a little a little rough here in the intro, but uh, it'll all get smoothed out once we, once we get on the phone with this week's guest. And we do have another great show lined up for you this week. Uh, we're actually going to be talking to wildlife photographer Tess Jolly of Alabama. And while many of you may not recognize that name, if you're an NDA member and you get Quality Whitetails magazine or you're a frequent visitor to our website, then you've almost certainly seen some of her work. Uh, Tess gets some amazing shots of deer and not only deer, but turkey and other wildlife as well. And her work has appeared in, in numerous national publications over the years. And as someone who has always had an interest in, in photography myself, Man, I just had a great time talking to Tess, picking her brain about her, her background and her work. Uh, she provides some excellent tips for anyone, any any aspiring wildlife photographers out there. Uh, also dives into some equip, equipment selection information as well, you know, depending on your level of interest. So uh, if you have ever had an interest in, in wildlife photography at all, then you're certainly going to enjoy this, this episode with, with Tess Jolly. Uh, before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Whitetail Properties. If you've ever dreamed of owning your own hunting land or, or you're in the process of looking for your first hunting property, be sure to check them out at whitetailproperties.com. They're the only land real estate company out there that requires their agents to become level two NDA deer stewards. So you know you're going to be dealing with someone who knows what to look for in a property for deer hunting and, and deer management. So be sure to check those guys out. Um, and speaking of deer steward, as I mentioned in our last episode, we recently launched our all new third edition of the deer steward one online course. Uh, it has a whole new look, a new platform. It's got more topics with the latest deer research as well as a lineup of new speakers. And uh, on top of that, in, in honor of the NDA's 35th anniversary, we're actually giving 35% off the course cost to the first 350 people to sign up. And I know I'm trying to get a, uh, a current count on that, but from, from last I heard, those spots are filling up very quickly. I do expect them to be gone here in, in the very near future. So if you've kind of been on the fence about whether or not to take the course, now's the time to make it happen. And you can learn more about that over at our website at DeerAssociation.com. Uh, click on our, our main menu there and look for the Deer Steward Program link under the NDA Programs menu item. Um, we're getting close to wrapping up our Vortex Optics giveaway. Uh, we're one lucky winner is going to get a pair of Vortex Crossfire HD 8x42 binoculars delivered right there to your door. 
There's no cost to enter the giveaway. You just got to head over to our website at DeerAssociation.com slash Vortex and get signed up for that. We're going to draw a winner at the end of the month here, the end of February. And one last thing before we jump on the phone here with Tess, if you're listening to this the day it releases, so that will be on Wednesday, February 22nd, then tomorrow on Thursday, February 23rd at 7 p.m. Eastern time, uh, we'll be hosting our 2023 Deer Report Live online event. Uh, NDA's own Kip Adams, Matt Ross, and Nick Penizzato are going to be diving into our 2023 Deer Report, uh, covering the highlights and providing an, an in-depth look at the data. You can see where you know the vast majority of whitetails are shot across the country, what the average age structure for bucks and does is, uh, how many deer hunters hit the woods annually, uh, the biggest deer management issues, and, and much more. And this is a completely free event. We just need you to, to pre-register, and you can do that at DeerAssociation.com slash DeerReportLive, just kind of all one word, DeerAssociation.com slash DeerReportLive, and, uh, or I'll, I'll throw a link as well in the show notes, so you can check that out either way. And with that, guys, we're going to jump on the phone here with Tess Jolly to talk about some wildlife photography. Hey, Tess, uh, before we dive into our kind of our main topic today, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and maybe kind of what you know eventually led you into um, pursuing wildlife photography? Uh, I'm really happy to be here with you, Brian. And uh, I have a little bit of a different kind of upbringing than most <laughs> girls. My dad and mom were both from Kansas. I was born there and we were a hunting family and dad was the photographer of the family. He was self-taught, but recorded everything on the old 16 millimeter cameras and on slide cameras (laughs) as well. He shot all color slides, but um, we moved to Florida when I was six and he joined a hunt club and didn't know that they didn't allow girls and women there in the 1960s. <laughs> and he was determined, he wasn't a lawbreaker, but he was determined that I could learn to hunt with my brothers and dressed me as a boy, told me not speak to anybody and answer to Harvey. So <laughs> I was eight years old to 11. I had an adventure of a lifetime really going hunting with my dad and my brothers and, and going incognito. And he photographed all of our hunts and that sort of thing. And that's what kind of was leading me up to what I do now. My dad planted the seed. It came naturally for me. My first camera was a Kodak Instamatic 110. <laughs> and uh, from there, you know, I just grew up. I went to school because uh, my career choice was medical lab technician. I did that for a few years and then went back into the family business and was a greyhound breeder and trainer for most of my adult life. And then met Mr. Ron Jolly, who was working with Primos Game Calls in 96, married him and met a lot of folks that in, were encouraging and instrumental in me taking the leap into wildlife photography. So did some guiding at White Oak Plantation, turkey guiding, and met a lot of editors and 
writers at that time and then joined the Southeastern Outdoor Press Association and met Mr. Lindsey Thomas, who is a really good friend and I think your boss. That's right. Yep, absolutely. I've been working with him ever since. Man, that's yeah, that's great. And uh, I I will say, you know, you're talking about your dad photographing everything, um, your all your hunting adventures there. That man, that is probably. My biggest regret now as I look back on all my years of, of hunting is man, I just wish I'd done a better job of keeping up with, you know, all that stuff, taking more pictures, you know, and taking better pictures along the way. But, yeah, it's it certainly makes for, uh, you know, being able to, to carry those memories with you. Absolutely. That's- and nowadays there's really no excuse not to <laughs> yeah. your, your adventures. Back then, you know, I'm dating myself. I'm not a I'm not a spring chicken anymore, but in the sixties, you had to develop film. You, you know, it was not that easy, uh, like it is to carry a, a cell phone around, but, um, we were blessed. Uh, we have a lot of old family photos and those are the treasures. Those are family treasures more than anything else is, is those photos. Yeah. Well, can you, I guess, kind of walk us through that progression as, as a wildlife photographer from, from the early starts or, or, or getting started, kind of taking that, um, well, that cue from, from your dad and, uh, and how did that end up, you know, being something that, that you're doing for a living? I mean, how, how did how walk us kind of through that, that progression of when you first started kind of turning that into a profession? Sure. I raised the greyhounds in the family business and trained them on a farm, you know, most of my life. And when I retired from it, my son was in college up here at Auburn. And I met, I was retiring from the Greyhound business. And I met Ron Jolly while I was a guide at White Oak Plantation here in Alabama. He, we had both been in attendance at the NWTF convention in Atlanta that year and met by chance. And course, the rest is history. He was a videographer for Primos and was producing the Truth Series that most deer hunters know about. Oh, yeah. Turkey hunters know about the Truth (laughs) Series. So he always likes to tell people he tricked me into marrying him. (laughs) (laughs) So we got married and he taught me some videography uh, skills and we started our own company and produced videos for old man tree stands and woods wise calls call masters uh, in our in the late nineties and I was a guide at White Oak Plantation, and we had writer hunts back then, Brian, uh, where manufacturer reps and outdoor writers would come and hunt at the that commercial outfitter and that's really what threw me into the world of outdoor communication through photography. I met so many well-known writers and photographers and editors working there. Um, And I I married Ron Jolly and met even more and got the encouragement. You know, I'd always shot still photography, but Paul Brown, Paul T. Brown from Mississippi, he's a well-known wildlife photographer. Um, I was introduced to him and he mentored me. He came over and spent some time here at our farm and 
I bought some of his equipment, uh, his old equipment, and he he mentored me sitting in a blind side by side on some of the finer points of wildlife photography. So with all of that combined, um, I had those connections uh, through my work and people just really were encouraging. I'll say that about outdoor communicators that by and large, they're very generous with their knowledge. They want to share and teach. And I was blessed to meet some of the best in the business. So people encouraged me to tell stories with my photos. So I dove into a little bit of writing to go with photography. And pretty much the rest is history. I've just had a had a very blessed time photographing and doing what I love and sharing it with others. And hopefully people learn a little bit along the way. Yeah, no, that, that, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess what's the the typical day look like in the in the life of a uh, a wildlife photographer, or or is there such thing as a typical day? Well, no, I mean, usually you have a camera in hand. That's typical. <laughs> You've <laughs> always got a camera handy, but you know it's seasonal. It, it it can vary from year to year. For instance, this morning I had seen some couple of gobblers who were getting a head start on strutting yesterday so i went this morning to see if i could shoot them and they they didn't show up but a beautiful buck chasing a doe happened to come through and i had some other younger deer and all around me so um a typical day i i'm up early i usually have a blind i i photograph here on the farm a lot i do travel some to shoot in other places, public land, national parks, or someone else's property. But here on the farm, I monitor it pretty much year round. And the typical day is to get up early and and get there before first light, get either in a blind uh, or set up and get all my equipment ready. And, you know, may use calls, may not. Sometimes I use some feed to make an animal hopefully go in a spot that the light's going to be pretty, that sort of thing. But um, usually take a break during the, during the day and then try to hit the good light in the afternoons. So, I mean, really not, not a whole lot different than uh, what, what a lot of us, uh, you know, deer hunters or turkey hunters might experience just uh, with a, with a different uh, weapon of sorts in hands, I guess. Yeah, exactly. You know, I tell people, the camera, you know, photography, wildlife photography is really hunting. It's recycled hunting <laughs> is what I call it. You know, I say boom to myself when I take a picture <laughs> of a big beautiful buck or a beautiful turkey. You know, it's it's just natural because I do love to hunt too. But that turkey or that deer, I may get another opportunity at, you know, to, to photograph them. So it's so much. I mean, it, it just basically is hunting without a weapon but with with a camera you do the same type planning you know knowing your subject is so important for photography end of it because like i may spend most all of the day with turkeys i may spend six hours with deer in you know if the weather is permitting and that sort of thing um so it's 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 like hunting you scout just like 
with hunting and uh, position your blinds or position yourself where you know you'll get the best angle. Um, just can't stress how how important it is to to know your subject. Yeah, yeah, and I I, I want to dive more into that kind of you know the relationship or the the similarities and, and differences between hunter and, and photographer here in a minute. Before I do though, I know you know obviously you were a photographer through that transition from the 35 millimeter film, you know, cameras to, to the digital cameras we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess what's kind of your, your take on that transition. Uh, I have to believe it's a great feeling not to have to deal with film anymore and wait to see your shots and all that. But uh, I don't know, maybe there, maybe there were some, some downsides of that transition as well. I don't know. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I went digital in 2003. And that was fairly early in it. As far as me knowing any other wildlife photographers, they were just kind of getting into it um, early in the 2000s. I, yeah, I shot back when, you know, every shot count counted. You had to know your, get to know a little bit about photography and light and, you know, how to, how to read light. Um, there was an automatic, setting but it, it's not as sensitive as today's technology offers photographers um like my dad he shot in manual he had a light meter and i started with a light meter and shot slides and um you really had to think about your shots so much more uh and then there was that that period of waiting while you waited for the <laughs> camera store to develop your pictures find out and i took notes my dad taught me take notes on your settings um now you have it in your metadata um the transition was fairly easy for me i just took some went to some seminars and and i'm a reader i'm self-taught through all this i didn't take any formal college on photography or anything like that but i'm I just had some great mentors and did a lot of reading and and took seminars and that sort of thing. But I did learn early on, Brian, (laughs) that the delete button is the photographer's best friend (laughs) because you can get over the mess ups a lot quicker on digital than you did with those slides and those photos (laughs) because you, you know, you made, you, you made the investment in the film and then you made that investment in the processing. And when you got your pictures back, the failures hurt worse. Now oh, yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> you can shoot a whole sequence, just hold the shutter down and I can shoot 14 frames per second on my camera. So I'm real liberal with shooting. Uh, in, in those days before digital, I think, I, I, myself, I'm not speaking for everybody else, but I tried to think more before I shot because it was an investment in every shot. Right. Yeah. Bigger monetary investment, but gosh, digital lets you go back and it records everything for you. So digital is, digital photography is such a great way to self-learn your mistakes and, and, and all because you just go into that metadata, those metadata files, and 
it's all there. Yeah. It's, and it's wonderful. I love it. <laughs> it, it, it. For those who might not be familiar with that term, what it what is metadata? Metadata is uh, the camera. It's a it's a computer inside. You know, a camera is like a phone. A phone is a computer. A camera has a computer in it. It records your down to the hundredths of a second, the time that you shoot a photo, the date. That all of the settings on my camera are recorded in that. You can even do your uh, set it up for your location. It'll give you your latitude and longitude. Um, having the settings embedded in an image, if you know where to go in your photo program to look at those settings, and while you're looking at that photo, and you can see whether you've underexposed or or overexposed, whether your white balance was correct, whether your focus was where it was supposed to be um, <clears throat> in relation to your f-stop. You know, it's just a wealth of, of information in every image that you shoot digitally that helps you become a better photographer if you, you know, if you learn to use it and understand it. I think reading light, though, is, you know, your white balance is one of the uh, important skills I think photographers um, use, the, you know, the really uh, accomplished photographers. There's, there's some out there that I follow that are, it's amazing how they use natural light to photograph. And, you know, that's just one of the things that digital photography allows you to set your light balance in your camera according to what the light is naturally where you are in that particular situation and then you can adjust it if you want yeah yeah well, that you... may be too deep for you I'm not <laughs> sure, but there you know there's two things that when people want to know how i get you know nice photographs that's pretty light and i said two things i would say besides reading your camera manual and learning about your camera, which everybody rolls their eyes at, like, oh, God, I'd yeah. rather you tell me how to do it than me have to read it, <laughs> um, is learning that light has a temperature. Your, your natural light, all light has a temperature. And also to pay attention to your backgrounds. You can, you can create, anybody can create impactful images if they if they learn how to read light and learn what's in the background behind their subject in order to make it you know pop and and look impressive those are two skills that are worth learning even if you're just dabbling hobbying in it those would be two things yeah yeah and we'll definitely dive into a little more of that here in the, in a minute with the the technique side of things um, yeah, but boy, technology has <laughs> definitely come a long way in uh, you know re relatively short amount of time. Uh, considering, I, I know I'm obviously not a uh, wildlife photographer, but I, I've appreciated the the transition to digital trail cameras for sure. Um, you know, not taking that role of of film out and taking it to the uh, 24 hour film place and then getting it and it being uh, a bunch of pictures of nothing or raccoons or whatever. And you just spent, I don't remember, you know, four or five bucks to get those developed. And uh, so, yeah, we've, we've come a long way for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Slide photography was 
very expensive to get developed back in the day, you know, in relation to a yeah. lot of other things, you know, you had, you had quite an investment in your, in your film and all. Yeah. And that's, I mean, slides were like the standard, I guess, if you were sending them to, to someone to, for print, correct? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Most everybody wanted, wanted slides. So you had to be able to store them. You had to have a scanner, a light box. Um, you know, it, it, it was a lot of work and people, and I haven't shot as many years as some of these well-known photographers, just like Paul Brown, you know, who have tens of thousands of color slides. Um, and you have to look at each one individually. <laughs> you can't just scroll through them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just amazing, you know. It um, I'm blessed that I got to see the how photography has evolved through my lifetime and my dad's. Um, just unbelievable. Everybody's a photographer nowadays, Brian. Oh, I mean, yeah. you got a cell phone. You know, they the technology in them is is just amazing. People. Uh, everybody's a photog. Yeah. All I do is look yeah. at social media. <laughs> yeah. The the problem today is you got people like me that have 9,000 photos on my phone and I never get any of them printed. I don't, <laughs> they're just there, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and probably most of them are, are garbage, but uh, you know, you just, you well, take them and then never go back through them. Yeah. That's, that's the downside of shooting digitally because uh, that's a, that's a, a real downside for somebody like me that loves to shoot sequences is just I can rip off dozens of photos of a buck doing a lick branch or making a scrape or running, chasing a doe. And when I get back to the computer, I've got to go through all those to find the best ones. You know, there's always a, a two-edged sword involved with, with it is the time that it takes to review and call and edit those photos. But on the other hand, you catch some amazing behavioral poses um, that the naked eye misses. And that's, we can talk about that later, but I, that is one of my um, challenges that I challenge myself with is to, to try to catch things and show people and hopefully inform them or let them and they learn just all the uh, unusual uniqueness of whitetails or turkeys, whitetails in particular, because we're talking about whitetails. There's just so much to learn about deer and photography is a great tool to learn it. Yeah. I have to, I have to imagine that a lot of time, maybe as much time as spent, actually you know out there in a blind photograph and wildlife that just the time you have to spend like you said going through those photos and and cataloging them you have to be i mean it takes a lot of organization i would think to kind of keep those photos the the ones that that you want and to, to be able to catalog them in, in a way that you can go back and find them when you know somebody has a specific need yeah um, that's a trick and it's an on it's, it's part of the job you don't I don't like because <laughs> I like being out in the in the woods. That's my thing. Being behind the camera, the processing part of it is it's um, you've got a lot of 
organization that has to happen if you're going to try to make a business of it. You have to be able to find those specific photos. And some of us are better at it than others. And and I'm not the best, but I do have a system that um, works pretty well for me. So I'm not sitting there just scrolling through hundreds of deer photos <laughs> looking for one where he's got his head back in a certain position, you know, something specific that someone wants. So it is, it's a, it's a huge job to, to um, review, call, edit, catalog, and then um, find. So you have to have some computer skills with various applications um, that work well with your style of photography because when you focus on, you know, one animal or a few animals, you know, it's not like taking scenics and traveling the world. They're easy to find. You know, you go to a certain location, but you look up white-tailed deer, buck, and you better be a little bit more specific about how you how you rec- um, organize those, yes. Yeah. That's very true. On the business end of it, the fun part's being out there and <laughs> work starts when you get in front of that computer, but it pays off. I would never complain. It, it, I would never want to sound like I'm complaining because yeah, God gives us all gifts, unique gifts. And if I have a gift of being able to get close to animal wildlife and and spend time with them and have the patience, it's it's a blessing. And I wouldn't trade it for the world for for any other job in the world. I just um, I'm close to God when I'm out in the in in nature and. I just feel like that's what I'm intended to do is be there. Yeah. So it's it's fun. I'm just thankful for digital photography. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, uh, just just curious, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but ha- what percentage, I guess, would would you say of photos taken you actually keep and catalog? Well, you know, I I thought about that early on because you know the trash can was fuller than my. <laughs> yeah. But I talked to Paul and and uh, other photographer friends and all. And back then, you know, they said if you keep twenty percent, what I call zingers, you know, ones that really say, "Oh, okay, I got to save that one." Um, I would say ten percent are just ones that are really nice that probably have a degree of difficulty in shooting. In other words. They don't happen all the time, you know, as opposed to a turkey strutting. That's common, but you get him doing something else, biting his snood while he's in the middle of a gobble. Those <laughs> are, you know, so there's a there's a small percentage like that. And then there's a percentage that, you know, are just really nice photographs that you could find a place for. And then, the, then there's what I call B-roll from the old video days. Ones you don't want to throw away because they might have some flaws, technical or otherwise, that could still be usable. So, but I would imagine I would throw away, discard, just delete um, 50 to 60 percent of digital because yeah. shoot so much. You know, I just I want to be shooting because I anticipate behavior. That's the thing about deer. Um you know, it's a it's almost like a game of can I be alert and behind the viewfinder with finger 
on the shutter at the right moment, you know, and, and not lose focus. So that's my challenge is to record all of the, the things that most folks don't see. And thus you shoot a lot of photos. So I throw away a lot of photos too, <laughs> but those sequences, but Lindsay's been good enough to assign me photo journals because that's what I like to do, you know, is to tell a story of something that's happening. Um, so I kind of got off the beaten path there. <laughs> no, that's all right. Many I throw away, and that's why I throw away a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you kind of mentioned there, uh, the, the one thing I love about being a hunter and, and the outdoors or an outdoors person is, is, you know, getting to see so much in nature that the mm-hmm. average person doesn't you know may never get to see or experience and i know you know obviously wildlife photography provides many if not more those those same benefits um what what are some of your most memorable sites or encounters as since you've been doing this well just the other day i had three my nephew was here from florida and we were hunting together and we had three young bobcats they they had to have been siblings. Chase a cottontail across. We were deer, of course, in a food plot. Chase a, a cottontail across the food plot. They circled in the woods behind us, and there were a there was a small family group of about six does and fawns and little button bucks and that kind of thing, about sixty yards from them when they chased that rabbit across. Well, they circled around and came out on the other side of us and went. One of them did and came right out toward those deer. And, of course, the deer were just tails flared and stomping and snorting. And that little, one of those little bobcats walked right up and humped its back like a house cat, (laughs) tail over its back, and Bluff ran at one of those little yearlings that came up, was curious, and scared it. It ran 50 yards. And turned around and looked, and it was just standing there giving it the eye. And my nephew said, I never would have believed I'd see anything like that. <laughs> and I recorded on my phone. That was the one day I told him, I said, if I don't take my big camera, we'll see something good. And we did. Sure that enough. Was, that was, was really good. Um, but I've seen some fights, between, battles between big, mature bucks, been close enough to, you know, I mean... I was far enough away until they fought over to me and I had to get behind a tree as they came by. But just the amount of energy and um, stamina it takes for two mature bucks to really lock horns and battle, you know, for minutes on end. It's, I think that's, I've never had my heart pound like that, just watching how brutal they, those those battles can be and how determined they are, you know, to win dominance. That's one thing about whitetails. They're just, they'll, they impress me so much with their resilience and, and all. Um, I, I was photographing deer and had wood ducks try to fly into my blind before. Let's <laughs> fall on me. I've had a raccoon get in the blind with me. I haven't had a deer try to get in the blind, but I've had them come up and put their head right in it. <laughs> um, 
you know, you're all, you always have something that you've never seen before happen. My dad said, if you keep your eyes open, every visit to the woods will teach you something. And he was right. Yeah. I like that. I, I try to, I try to do that with, with hunting as well. You know, I always come out with, uh, you know, learning something, a, a little more knowledge than I went in with. So. Yeah. And photography will do that because you really sweat details and it makes you learn more about deer um, or whatever you're photographing, but just to um, observe their behavior, their social interactions. I had no idea that, um, you know, photographing bucks in velvet late in the summer, the camaraderie among the bucks is, uh, you know, it's amazing. The younger bucks, I, I not just once or twice, but it's common on our the bucks that I've seen how the they'll groom each other the bucks will they they'll groom each other like a doe grooms their fawns or their you know their yearlings a lot of licking and and all seem to be close you know there'll be a couple of three young bucks that will tag with an older buck like a big like a big brother and let them He'll let them, once they've hardened off, he'll let them spar with him. And, you know, you, you get to see things like that that are just, um, you know, it's, it's amazing the interaction with whitetails among the herd. And it'll teach you to be a better, better hunter, hunter and, and to be patient. You know, patience is everything in hunting, and it's even more in photography. And I think that makes you a better hunter if you learn to, if you, do enjoy wildlife photography. It'll make you a better hunter um, in large part because of patience required. Yeah. Well, you, boy, you read right off my notes because that, that was the, <laughs> the, that was the very next thing I was going to ask you about is, you know, obviously the, you know, wildlife photography gets you and puts you in very close contact with these animals. Uh, you have mm-hmm. to go undetected just like you were hunting. And so, you know, I was going to ask you, how that how that does prepare you to be a a better hunter and of course you said patience is key right there and anything else that you would add to that well that patience will help and being close to deer has helped me with buck fever or just over excitement yeah. being close to deer it the you know familiarizing yourself with um that feeling of having a wild animal close to you and and that's what you know, buck fever can be defined in a lot of ways in in my mind. It's not just it's not fear, it's it's excitement, but it's it's a thrill, but there is a fear, oh am I gonna miss or whatever. But when you photograph and you're around deer, um I find I'm more comfortable when I'm hunting and not necessarily photographing when something like a you know, a trophy sized buck walks in. Uh, first time I th- thing I'm thinking about is okay, you know, I don't think about the fear factor of it. I'm looking at details, and I've seen them before, so it's not something new. And I think that's what photography can really help with hunters is if you devote more time being around deer and not killing them. You know, every time you go out, you get more comfortable be- having them uh, close by. Um, it helps me field judge age and and antler size and health condition by being a photographer because I do get to see a lot of deer 
and I, I do get to notice those things that um, some people may not notice, like injuries, um, abnormalities, maybe an illness. Like uh, we had a buck that had a severe case of mites. You know, just I'd never seen anything like that before. I probably wouldn't have noticed it unless, except that I was close to that buck. But um, it gives you a really good look at your at deer. And I think that that helps you be calmer. Um, the photography helps me con- chronicle some of these bucks here on the farm that from year to year, we can see how they, you know, how the antler development is. Um, whether the does are dropping one single fawns or two twin fawns, um, you know, you just, you learn about their vocalizations more. You get, um, I hear more when I'm photographing than when I'm hunting, it seems like, because, um, I'm out there longer and deer, you know, I hear it. I really enjoy when the does have the fawns and they bringing them into these food plots, early food plots. We have a real late fawn drop here in our area. They don't drop until mid-August through September. So we have some early food plots usually, and then the sawtooth acorns are dropping and it's like deer central station. <laughs> you, that is the best time to photograph for me. Absolutely love it. It gives it gives a good idea of your fawn crop and your buck crop. And if there's no other reason to photograph, a hunter should photograph late summer. Um, go to a spot where you know you've got those early acorns dropping, and the deer are usually going to be on those and the soft mass. So you know it, it all of that works toward making you a better hunter when deer season rolls around to me anyway i i i have found it helps me yeah yeah and their movements and that sort of thing yeah i mean from from what you said there it sounds like it not only you know can make you a better deer hunter but but a better deer manager as well just being able to to pay attention to what's going on around you like you said there the the quality of the bucks, the the weight Absolutely. and the health of your deer, just being able to to kind of get a, a better grasp of, of those. So Yeah, and you know, I talk to a lot of hunters that wanna uh they you know, they'll say, What kind of equipment do I need to buy? Uh and all and that if you if you wanna photograph beyond your hunt during your hunting time, that's where it really helps. Um, I think. Because we all like to take a camera or a phone or something and, and photograph while we're hunting. But if you want to spend some extra time um, photographing just to see, just to learn, um, it will make you a better hunter. If you devoted a week or so just in late summer, when you, if you have a good spot where you know bucks are going to be uh, hitting acorns or in a, in a, a newly planted green field, you're going to help yourself be a better hunter just by spending that time, you know, around deer early like that, and then take pictures. You've got something to go on as far as what, what to expect. I have a love hate relationship <laughs> with trail cameras though. Why is that? The mystery out of, well, trail cameras, I love them and I use them. I have, we have them year round around here, but 
it has taken some of the mystery and romance out of deer hunting and turkey hunting because you know so much more um, than we did in the old days right. before cameras. You know, I I put a string up across a trail with a little timer on it. That was I, my first trail. I had one of those. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but. Yeah. It, it it's a great learning tool and management tool, but on the emotional side of, of hunting, I like to be surprised and it does affect how I relate to the deer because I want to, I want to not know them, you know, yeah. I like to see a buck I've never seen before. Um, that may be just me. Now, a lot of people say, oh man, she's a loon. <laughs> We no. want to see up for, for our antlers. And I did say earlier, it does give you an idea of your shoot list. You know, you can develop a shoot list off of uh, photography. You, you see what bucks need to go and, and ones you want to let grow. So there's, there's always that double-edged sword with them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of the same way. I have that, that love-hate relationship with them. Because for one thing, I, I know as a hunter, a lot of times I'll let them dictate. I'll rely so much on that trail camera. I'll, it'll dictate if I even hunt an area. And I'm basing, yeah. I'm basing that on one little area where this camera is pointed. You know, yeah. there, there could be bucks walking, you know, 50 yards on the other side of the tree from this camera. And I wouldn't know it, but because I didn't, you know, they didn't walk in front of my camera. I'm, I'm basing my decisions on, on that information. So yeah, I'm the same way I go back and forth. Uh, it, it is there is something about just going out there to a place where you haven't been, you haven't been running cameras and you have no idea what might show up. You know, you're not, there's no anticipation there one way or the other, of whether or not something's going to show up. So. Yeah. And we, we all, I think could be used to be woodsmanship would was key. You had to know how to move through the woods just to scout. Even you had to have those skills like our ancestors did. They didn't have these benefits, but yet they could live with nature, live near animals and all, because they knew how to move in the, where they lived and all. And um, it, that, that we don't do so much anymore. We have it in our hand um, telling us where to go and, and how to get there and, and all. And that's just part of progress. But um, I do, I do enjoy um just not knowing and going in there to be surprised at what I see. And I, and that's probably just my age telling on you get a little more sappy about things as you, you know, as the years go by, but gosh, um, hunters nowadays, especially the young hunters have so many tools at hand. Um, but I think it's good if they have, have mentors or people that that can show them the old ways on how to how to get through the woods without and learn the woods you know a lot of people can go in and hunt a place and never set foot on it and know how to how to move through it you know how to get from point a to point b where we didn't used to have that we had a compass yeah yeah or I, or I just go out there and get lost and have yeah. to figure my way yeah. back out. Oh, well, we, my dad tied a, a dog whistle around each of us kids' neck. Because <laughs> <laughs> we hog hunted with dogs in Florida in the swamps. Probably. And that was 
I mean, that was our thing. We, we deer hunted some, but it was more um, incidental because you had to run dogs for a deer and you just saw them race across a road, you know, or something. It was very thick uh, terrain. Yeah, but, and um, flat, I'm sure. Oh, flat as <laughs> and full of water. But <laughs> that, was, that, was a different, that was a different time. That's all. But I've kind of strayed off the photography end of it. No, that's okay. Too. <laughs> no, you, you were talking there about, you know, as you got older, I guess, you know, the the more sentimental side of it. And and I certainly, um, as I've gotten older, the, the drive to hunt hasn't necessarily lessened, but the, the drive to kill has. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm just curious, as you got more into wildlife photography, did the drive, did your drive to hunt kind of decrease? Were you, would you rather be out there with your camera as opposed to a gun or, or is there, I guess, how do those, how do those play out? How do you, how do you decide? Well, let me tell you a couple of rules I have. These are Tessa's rules. <laughs> <laughs> um, you must be present to win. And this is, a, the, rule two is a variation of Murphy's Law. Neglect or forget your camera and you will regret it. Now, that being said, as I've aged, I have found that, thankfully, I usually have a camera and a weapon with me at all times. And that's um, whether, you know, whether I'm photographing and, and I've got one with me in case a predator or something that can legally be taken out, I can take it out. When I hunt, I'll take a picture of an animal before I'll shoot it, uh, if that makes sense to you. I would rather capture it on film first. And a lot of times I do not pull a trigger because I've gotten the enjoyment out of the experience and have my trophy, quote unquote, in an image. And that animal is still there uh, to enjoy. and I. But it doesn't mean that it's uh, it hasn't lessened my my love for hunting or my yearning to go. It's just that now I have another way of putting a tag on one. You know, I, I put that photographic tag on it. He's still there or the turkey is still there. And if I hunt again, I may want to shoot him the next time. You know, it may be the type of hunt where it, it gives me the satisfaction that I want hunting. I don't want to just go out to kill something. I want to go out to have an experience that I remember and that I value because that animal's life has value. And, you know, management aside where you have to take quotas of does and, and that sort of thing, generally hunting is an, an emotional experience. And I find at my age that Having a camera along is just, it's just wonderful. I can come back and tell the story and show everybody what I shot. Yeah. Yep. I didn't bring them back. And you camp. didn't have to drag it out. <laughs> I didn't do any of that. It does. It, it does change me. It has changed me because I, know, I just realized how special wildlife is from spending so many years i mean i truly spend more time with wildlife than i do with people and love people too but um 
I have Native American ancestry, so my comfort zone is among animals and or wildlife and, and in nature and all. So hunting is a big part. I I I like to eat wild you know, wild game. Ron and I are, you know, we're we're both hunters and both enjoy eating it. Uh, but we also enjoy the the emotional side of it. And we're just so blessed to be able to carry cameras along too and, and get the best of both worlds, Brian. I mean, that's one thing I would say, take a camera beyond your phone if you really, really like that. And just, it just deepens your experience uh, yeah. having a camera along, whether you video it or still photo it, just capture it. All yeah. the same thing. Yeah, uh, I'll definitely be challenging challenging myself to uh to, to take mine along more this this coming season for sure and when you're young you know you i went through those stages where i was hashtagging all the bow kills of you know see how many does i could shoot <laughs> we all go through those stages i still have those hunting hats but we all you know if we're lucky enough to live long enough, you do go through different stages. And photography is one stage, I think, that really fits with the maturing hunter. Somebody that's been in the woods a lot and all, and they've had a lot of experiences. And it does take you to a deeper level of enjoyment of wildlife and nature. Is um, You couple that with your hunting, and I just, I just think it's a... A wonderful way to spend your time outdoors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's transition into uh, a little bit, just a, a little bit of equipment talk, I guess, for somebody mm-hmm. that might want to, you know, try their hand at this and and take a camera to the woods with them this fall. Uh, what yeah. what would they need to get started? What what kind of equipment would they need to initially invest in to be able to to do that? Um. The first thing that they'd need to consider is what is their goal with a camera along? Are they just going for memory shots, something to share with their buddies um, or family or on social media? Um, That plays into the next question is what's your budget? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's the thing that when I got started in, that was what the experts all asked me, the pros. How much money do you have and what's your goal? And that pretty much tells you what you, you know, what kind of gear you, you want to look for. Because if, if you're going to sit in a shooting house and take pictures, you don't necessarily need a tripod. You can rig up the, the window with a cushion and shoot without that kind of thing. Um, the, the next thing is, is to consider a, bridge camera. And if you don't know what a bridge camera is, it's just a term that a category term that a lot of people who want to do more than shoot with a cell phone, they'll buy a a bridge camera, which is a is a high-end point and shoot. In other words, you've got some like Nikon, I'm a Nikon shooter, and they have a point and shoot that'll has a thousand millimeter zoom lens on it. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous what you can do with them. They're not going to make the cover of Outdoor Life, but for the casual hobbyist or hunter that wants to get a little bit better photos of 
their hunts, not necessarily just all wildlife to, you know, live wildlife, but after the hunt, you know, memorializing that experience with your friends and, and all when you do tag a deer, um, a, a bridge camera is a, a point and shoot that has a lot more features. It's self-contained. You're not changing lenses. It'll zoom out there to get what you want. It'll shoot video, records audio. You know, they got a multitude of settings from macro. If you want to take a picture of a pile of deer droppings to, you know, zooming into his eyeballs standing out in the food plot. So I would, I tell anybody that's, especially hunters, get you a really nice point and shoot bridge camera. Nikon makes one like like a P9000, I think is the one that um, a couple of friends of mine have. They're not going to do everything that the equipment that I have does, but it's going to do a whole lot more than their cell phone will. Um, So, I mean, that that would be in the way of equipment. A good tripod, if you're going to really get into it, um, you need to invest in a tripod because if you're shooting at a shutter speed that's slower than what your your lens is you got to have some stability or you're going to be wasting your time but any of the DSLR cameras by any of the manufacturers are going to be a step up in quality and I shoot for whitetails I'll shoot any Thing like an 80 to 200 millimeter lens, but I I really like my 120 to 300. That's a great whitetail lens. You can shoot in the woods, but you can also shoot a distance with it, um, with these DSLRs, if that makes sense. I don't know if yeah. that's too technical, but those, no, those no. point and shoots are, are really good cameras that you can put them in a pack, Brian, and, you know, put them in a little padded case and they're going to take a whole lot more abuse than trying to haul an 80 to 200 lens mounted on a DSLR unless you've got enough room and enough um, physical stamina to hike around with all of that uh, in addition to your hunting gear. If you're, if you're wanting to take something along hunting, a bridge camera is great. If you think you want to shoot in the off-season, when you're not hunting, then that investment in a um, a DSLR with maybe a 100 to 300 or something like that uh, is good for whitetails. You can never have too much lens if if you're shooting smaller wildlife. Whitetails are pretty big; um, they can be out there a little ways, and a and a good telephoto zoom lens will get you plenty of close-up shots. Yeah. Now, as far as the lenses, as somebody, you know, I do have a, a DSLR. And one thing I've noticed when you get to looking at those lenses is, man, there is a wide range of of pricing on those. Um, nope. Anywhere from, you know, 150, 200 bucks up to thousands of dollars. Uh, wh- what's the difference there? I mean, what what well, what kind of long- what kind of lens would I need if I really wanted to to start taking uh, wildlife photography more seriously and and you know what's the difference between those $200 lenses and the $1000 lenses or $1000 plus dollar lenses it's like anything you get what you pay for it's the glass you're paying for in lenses um there are elements what 
terms, it's a term called elements inside the lens that make them work, uh, how they refract the light and, and gather light and all. And um, your high-end lenses have high-quality glass and more elements. Um, they'll have um, vibration reduction capabilities. In other words, it'll help eliminate shake if you're, uh, you know, out of focus photos. If you're shooting handheld, that's a feature of lenses that'll jack the prices way up. Um, you know, you just, it's, it's how weatherproof they are, how sturdy your lower end ones are going to be a, a lesser quality housing, um, more of a plastic where the bigger lenses are going to be titanium. My first lens was a 400-3.8, and that thing, I swear, is made out of cast iron. <laughs> My 400-2.8 weighs 11 pounds. That's without the camera on it. That's wow. an, old, an old model Nikon lens, and it sold for like $5,000 back 20 years ago. And I bought it from, from Paul Brown when they came out with the titaniums. And I'm still shooting that lens, but it's some of the most perfect glass that they that Nikon made. But you do it, it's it's in the your your price difference is in the glass, and of course the features on that lens and and the materials that and, that house it. So if you've got the budget, spend the money on the glass, and you there are a lot of good, reasonably priced camera bodies but get the best glass you can afford that's yeah. my what i learned and from others when i was starting out is buy the best glass you can buy meaning like the lens glass yeah a anything else other than you know you get your camera and, and your lens and you mentioned a tripod there any other you know basic accessories or anything that's going to make life easier on you as you try this out is is there any need for you know, any kind of filters or anything like that, or what else might I, you need? Yeah, I don't use filters because, um, you know, I shoot in a raw format, so I can pretty much process images on the computer and change the the lighting, the filter, and all on it. Um, you need a, a a good camera bag, and you need uh, a good rain coat for your rig. In other words, they'll make, if you buy a Nikon with a 80 to 200 lens, Optech or someone like that makes, um, you know, a rain covering for your rig because some of the best photos you'll get is in, in, is in bad weather. Um, so you should always have something to protect your gear. If it's nothing more than rolling up a couple of Walmart bags or a trash bag and keeping it in your pack, that's as, as, and as important as anything is to, if you're going to make the investment, make sure you can cover it if you've got to get from point A to point B and it pours down rain and, and your camera is exposed. The other thing is make sure you bring your wildlife calls or, I mean, you could use a recording. I use my voice for turkeys because I want both my hands free. So I've kind of learned how to make some turkey sounds. But like a fawn bleat, I take those 
in the summer, in late summer, when the fawns are on the ground and starting to come out with the mamas to these acorn trees, you can get some great shots doing a little distress, fawn in distress. Um, just make sure you don't get run over. <laughs> um, and it, that it's amazing. You can get some, and you don't want to do it over and over, but I'll do it once in a fall just to um, get a response. And so taking calls along are, are, is always important. Um, I, I always have some kind of weapon, um, just an off chance that there's something that, you know, either a, a predator or something that's legal to, to take out. I just like to, I, I've always, I've, I just don't leave home without it. I'll put it that way. Right. Uh, not everybody wants to carry some kind of weapon, but um, but I do. Uh, we have hogs so bad here that I can't tell you how many times I've been going to my blind to photograph and walk up on hogs or have them come in and scatter whatever I'm photographing. And I don't want to regret not having a gun if a hog comes through. That's um, that's just something that that I. I always have with me. Right. Um, there was one other thing here. I had made a couple of notes. I guess that was, yeah, just the, um, the other thing would be, and it's not really gear related, but it would be a little bit of advice is invest in some blinds that you can shoot out of. Lucky's blinds are just my go-to blind. Um, they can be, you can look them up on the internet. It's called Lucky's hunting blinds. Um, if you have a chance to go where deer are a bit habituated, like campgrounds in public, on public ground, national parks, things like that, you can really develop some skills just where you have a better chance, high percentage chance of seeing wildlife. Um, but now a blind, if you're doing, you know, if, you, if you're going to be photographing like I do on free roaming wildlife, um, a blind is is a good thing to have to just make it room enough. If I spend most of the day in it, it's going to be big enough. I can lay down on the ground and take a nap. <laughs> uh, it's my office. I yeah. call it my, stu- my office and nature is my studio. So I take as much of the comforts of the, of the of home as I can into that blind. Cause I, I may be there a while. I guess as we kind of wrap things up here, um, just any any tips as far as technique goes, you know, what say, you know, somebody has a camera uh, like myself who I, I gets out there some and, and tries to tries to get some some good wildlife photographs, but they just never, you know, seem to be um, even though I can go out there and, you know, I might go to a park or something and get all these pictures of deer and I'll bring them back and and they're just. They never look as good as those ones. You know, they don't pop, I guess, as, like those ones yeah. you see in the magazines and and the ones like you shoot and, and on the cover of uh, Quality Whitetails. I, any tips, I guess, there as far as technique goes to get those those better shots? Well, one thing is if you if you can move around, if you're going out like to parks and things, use your feet, move around, shoot from different angles, get low Anytime you shoot white wildlife and you can get lower than their eye level, it's more impactful. If you look at a lot of photography that makes covers and that gets the most likes on social media and stuff, 
watch what your angle of shooting is. We all tend to shoot at eye level, our eye level. We don't like to bend our knees, lay <laughs> on the ground. I get on the ground, lay down flat to get get that angle up. And anytime you can highlight an animal, getting low will help you do that, even if you don't have a lot of slope. If you'll watch your background, move a few feet and you can change the whole color of the background. When sunlight hits tree lines late in the afternoon, even though they're green, if they're a long ways away, you know, say 50 yards or in where they're going to be out of focus, pay attention to where the sun is shining because you'll create yellows and oranges and different colored backgrounds by watching what the light is hitting behind your subject. So if you're in a park and there's a deer, you know, walking around and all, and you got decent light on on it, crouch down, get lower, move to where there's a, a nicer background that should it should pop out of. In other words, it's not a brown background like the deer is. You follow me? Yeah. Yep. Okay. I didn't want to sound too complicated, but <laughs> no. bending your feet and bending your knees and watching for backgrounds and watching how light plays off of the backgrounds. In the wintertime, you have some beautiful grays and whites and charcoal colors with the dead trees. For backgrounds, like I'm looking out the window right now and I, you know, we've got pines on one side of the pond, but there's a whole lot of uh, gum trees at the other end. Well, if I line up a turkey or a deer on a little and, and have that gray in the background, it's going to look it's going to look smooth gray um, with different shades of it. If the sun's hitting it, it it'll it'll be a different color then. So. Reading light and how your backgrounds are gonna gonna be a palette for the back of your subject is important. I like clean backgrounds. Um, other than you know, if you get a big buck and thick stuff and all that can be very impactful. Just watch for behaviors that are a little bit different. Of deer looking over its shoulder at you, if you if you can move get where you might be able to get him looking back at you. Um, turn your camera and shoot verticals. Most folks are going to shoot horizontals, but turn it vertically and you get a different perspective altogether. Yeah, that makes sense. Shoot wide, see if there's something interesting in the background uh, that shows the viewer, the environment. Shoot a wide shot where it's more scenic than it is wildlife, but you still see that wildlife interacting with its environment. Environmental photography um, with wildlife in it, you know, your your landscapes with wildlife are some of my favorite. And it's really not a close. Uh, I either like super close up where I can count the hairs in the turkey's <laughs> ear or I like some wide stuff that tells me that, okay, this is where deer like to be. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a good fall, point. Yeah, fall isn't the only time that um, that you get beautiful colors. It's the favorite time, but I'm telling you one thing to watch for is after a rain or after a fog 
or the next morning after a rain, everything is saturated wet. Your colors are much more intense when they're when everything is damp is wet. So if you have a choice to go shoot, um, like right after a rain or when the fog is when you have fog, uh, that gives you a you know a totally different look with your wildlife, a soft look. It, it evokes emotion. And that's the other thing that, you know, I try to look for is what's this going to make the viewer feel when I take a photo? Um, fog, rain, snow, whatever, it all makes you feel a different feeling. Um, but wet foliage is just dynamite for photographing in. Okay. It's like pumped up the color. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah, something I had not thought about. So I'll definitely, definitely keep that in mind. When you go out, you know what broom sedge fields look like? Oh, yeah. I'm sure when they're wet, look at the color of that broom sedge as opposed to when it's dry. It's beautiful. It's, it's, a, it's a subtle orange, brownish orange. And when you highlight that with greens of pines and browns of some leaves that are still on and, you know, all of that, and then you get a deer in front of it or in it. Um, yeah, wet, look for wet times to shoot. Okay. They can be magical. <laughs> well, as, as we wrap things up here, is there, is there a place that, uh, the listeners can kind of keep up with what you're doing or maybe, you know, be able to check out some of your work online? Is there anywhere you're active on social media? Yeah, I've got a, an Instagram account. It's at J O V test J O V T E S. Uh, J-O-V stands for Jolly's Outdoor Visions. It's Ron and I's company. Um, and then on Facebook, it's Tess Randall Jolly. Uh, most of what I post on Instagram will go over to Facebook, but Instagram's where I usually initiate um, posts and would love to love to follow some of these other folks out there. I love to see other people's work. and especially people that are starting out too. It's, it's a pleasure to, to see how other people see nature because we all have our own style. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, Tess, thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day and uh, dur during the peak of the rut where you're right there in Alabama at that. So um, to, to talk to us about wildlife photography, I, I know I've definitely picked some things up today and, and learned a lot, enjoyed the conversation and I know our listeners. So, uh, We'll enjoy it as well. I look forward to seeing what uh, future shots you come up with for us here at uh, NDA. And yeah, wish you the, the best of luck the remainder of your deer season. Well, I appreciate it. That buck that was running the doe this morning has kind of um, got my interest peaked. Uh, hopefully you'll be seeing something with a in quality whitetail soon with a American Phoebe taking a ride on a whitetail buck's antler. <laughs> for you yeah well i'll but definitely I, be looking for that yeah i appreciate it so much and i appreciate national deer association this organization has just um been such a critical component to whitetail management and education and outreach I, i'm very honored to be able to work with Lindsay and now you and just be a part of promoting whitetails and 
and making sure that all of our future generations have them to enjoy like we have. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I look forward to continuing to see and and be able to, to use your work here for sure. All right. Well, I'll I'll be out there trying to get it. Thank you. <laughs> well, good <so> deal. <laughs> All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Tess Jolly. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and and several more. So about anywhere. You could listen to uh, listen to podcasts. You should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots habitat improvement um, deer management you name it uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related we got some good content right there on our website available to you so check that out and of course you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms facebook instagram twitter and youtube at deer association so again thanks for listening to the deer season 365 podcast the podcast where deer season never ends